Welcome to the MediaCasters with your business besties, Karina Belizzi and Julie Loken. In every episode, you'll get behind-the-scenes access to experts who share their struggles and successes in podcasting, publishing, and presenting. So grab a pen, grab your bestie, and kick it with Karina and Jules. What we're going to do is we're going to laugh today, and we're going to learn a story about one of the most endearing and ingenious forefathers in broadcast media. Do you have any idea who I'm talking about, Karina and Belizzi? I might have a clue. Yeah, yes. you do. Art Bell, our friend Art, took a simple concept of 24-hour comedy programming to make it into something so stratospheric that it's blown, I don't know if it's blown his mind, but it's blown my mind. And by 2018, 47.8% of American households were consumers of his deliciously hilarious network, Comedy Central. Today on the MediaCasters, we are going to give you a little glimpse into the funny and maybe not so funny worlds of this little known cable channel, Comedy Central. Of course, I'm trying to be funny, and I think it may backfire on me today, but we'll see what happens. Art is the author of Constant Comedy, How I Started Comedy Central and Lost My Sense of Humor, an amazing book. I recommend everyone go out and buy it today. And by all accounts, I think he's a really nice guy. We had a little chance to just chat with him before we started recording. We're super excited. Art is the purveyor of all things funny, featuring shows such as Reno 911, The Daily Show, and the infamous animated cartoon South Park. So Karina, this is going to be a big show. I'm so happy that we have our guy, Art Bell, here. Let's kick it. Art, welcome to the show. Thanks, guys. Great to be here. So, Art, there's a rabbi, a priest, and a monk, and they walk into a bar. Can you? You want me to finish the joke yeah, or what? Finish it. For me. That's it. That's all I got. He's got to make it funny. That's, <laughs> That's the goal, funny, right? not so funny. A rabbi, a priest, and a. No, I'm monk. not going to finish it. I do know a finish to that joke, but it's really not broadcast worthy. Okay. So, we'll skip it. <laughs> I demur. So, you're an author. I mean, you have such a rich history going back to. 87. I don't even know. When did you start working at HBO and how did this all evolve? I started working at HBO about 80, in 1985. And I went there as a financial analyst, which is about the last thing I wanted to do in the television business. But got your foot in the door. That was my foot in the door. Yeah, it was my way in. Yeah. And I just want to point out that in those days, HBO was kind of like the Netflix of today. Mm-hmm, you know, yeah. I mean, it was the coolest place in television to work because they were doing all the new stuff. You had the three networks, ABC, NBC, CBS, and then HBO was putting on movies and also uncut comedy. Mm-hmm. They, you know, Robin Williams special, Whoopi Goldberg special. You couldn't see that stuff anywhere else uh, on television because they were not censoring it or editing it. So HBO was really a cool place to work then. Yeah, it became, I think, the place where I got to know George Carlin and fall in oh, love with his work George too. George Carlin. Oh, wow. not personally. Oh. <laughs> you know, I will say that George Carlin was an early, you know, he, he his albums were huge when I was about, I would say, 13 or 14 years old. Right. And we used to listen to them over and over in my house. Great guy. Have you ever been starstruck? I mean, that's... Starstruck. Um, Let's see. Uh, 
You know, typically, no, because after a while, you know, you're just kind of seeing people. I'm trying to think of an occasion where I was totally bowled over by someone. I will tell you, there was one occasion. My, uh, I was, as this was after comedy, and my boss called me in and he said, hey, come on in to my office because I want you to meet somebody. I said, sure. So I didn't know who it was. I walked in and sitting on the couch was Mel Brooks. Oh, wow. You know, one of the gr- all-time wow. great comedy guys in the whole world and one of the funniest guys. And he said, <laughs> he said to me, he says, does your mother know you dress like that? <laughs> and I laughed and I said, yeah, I think so. She dressed me this morning. <laughs> and he laughed and I thought, great, I got Mel Brooks to laugh. My life is complete. Anyways, that was, I, I, I wouldn't say starstruck, but I was, that's as close as I've come to being like, Wow, I'm in the same room as Mel Brooks. And he asked me for a favor, too. And I gave mm. it to him. Well, I, I bet you give him just about anything at that moment, right? <laughs> <laughs> the shirt the off house, the kids, take it all. No, no. He asked me for a favor. Uh, this is a story I didn't tell in the book. But I'll tell it because it's a funny story, interesting story. He said, my son wants to get into the television business. Hmm. Would you have lunch with him? Hmm. And I said, yeah, great. So his son's like 24, 25 years old. And we have lunch. And we're talking about television. And then he starts talking to me about his writing. And I said, listen, Max, his name's Max Brooks. I said, it sounds like you're a writer. I don't think you want to go into television. I think you want to write books. So the next thing I know, the guy writes a book that becomes a huge bestseller. It's um, the the book about um, zombies. What was it called? Zombie zombie revolution or something like that zombie wars something like that he world war z book. i don't that's i don't think it. that was written by world him. really zombie yeah i think that's right <laughs> anyway he writes his, the biggest thing becomes a movie becomes everything else and you think the guy would write hey thanks art you know five years later i'm a you know world class no never heard from him <laughs> i started him on his career Anyway. Max, if you're listening, you need to write a thank you note to Uncle Art. <laughs> if you're listening, we'll all be surprised, actually, but <laughs> that would be nice. So your path to working in entertainment was a little different than that of most. I mean, first, your undergrad, you said you're going to be an economist, right, studying economics, and then going to Wharton to get your MBA, and then working finance track to HBO, and creating an opportunity for yourself there that was a little different because you saw a hole in the marketplace where comedy wasn't being served the way that HBO could have, right? And so that's essentially what, when you came to them and said, hey, you know, we should really have a comedy show that we're, you know, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, let's take Dr. Demento and put it on steroids, right? Exactly do something different than had been done to date. Right. Now, why do you think you encountered so much resistance initially to that idea? I think for two reasons. One, people did think it was a stupid idea. I mean, they just thought, you know, seriously, 24 hours of comedy. And I would say, well, 24 hours of news, 24 hours of sports. 20, and they said, no, that's all different. Mm-hmm. They'd say, there's plenty of comedy on television. We're HBO. We're putting comedy on there. The second reason is, it's expensive. Hmm. In those days, you know, these days you you, you can put a, a television channel out of your garage if you want to, you know, if you have a computer. Uh, and that's what TikTok and YouTube actually ended up doing. Um, but in those days, you needed a lot of infrastructure. You needed satellite equipment. 
And I'm not talking little satellite. I'm talking like giant satellite equipment, uplink facilities, studio facilities. You needed all this stuff. Mm -hmm. And they said, it's very expensive. And given that it, we think it's a stupid idea, why would we take a risk like that? So mm -hmm. yeah, that's, that's why people didn't want to do it. Wow. Well, I'm sure now looking back, hindsight is that 2020, right? How many different channels are there that really focus in some way on comedy at this time? Well, uh, not too many, huh? but you know, it's interesting you say that because one of the other objections was at the time, there's too many cha cable channels already. Now this was 1988, 89, mm -hmm. and there were about 20 cable channels. <laughs> you know, I mean, it was, things were just getting started. Mm -hmm. Of course, now we have 200 or 300 or 600 or whatever, whatever the number is. And streaming is a factor now. So things have come a long way since that. Yeah, for certain. How do you keep up with all those changes? I mean, everything is live streaming at this point. Yeah. I retired. That's how I keep up. <laughs> wow. I, and I started I, writing and I thought this is much more fun. I was right when I told Max writing was fun because I became a writer and it is fun. I love that transition of you being a financier to being a writer because I see the left brain, right brain. I got the whole brain. You. I have the entire brain. Karuna mentioned that I started in economics. And I have to say, I, you know, people say, oh, my gosh, you were an economist. I was an economist in Washington for three years wow. right out of college. And they say, that must have been horrible for you. No, I liked being an economist. I thought economics was fascinating. I still do. And it was a very smart time in my life. I was very smart then. And uh, it's been downhill pretty much since then. But <laughs> I was going to say, as opposed to now. Yeah, you know what? I think people are at their smartest and most creative. Well, I won't say most creative, but I think people are really kind of at the top of their game in their 20s and early 30s. And that's where I was working with really smart people. And it didn't occur to me until sort of the end of that three years working as an economist that maybe I should do something different because I was facing grad school in economics and becoming a professor. And I didn't think that was the life for me. So mm -hmm. I changed it up, went to business school. Yeah. And business school for finance to then work in the finance. world of <laughs> and finance is not funny to me actually it's very there's nothing funny about finance depressing. it is a little depressing <laughs> uh less interesting i think to me anyway than economics but you know i went there and i wish somebody had told me this but i went there thinking that okay here's what i'm going to do i'm going to go get my degree my mba and then i will get a job in television piece of cake right Turns out that you don't, you know, even in those days, especially, you don't really need an MBA to work in television. As a matter of fact, that wasn't really a great calling card for me when I got out. Mm -hmm. And I had a tough time getting a job out of business school. My, you know, listen, most of my friends in business school were going to Wall Street and consulting firms. And, you know, that's where they wanted consulting firms. I had worked in one. And so they came to me and said, come on, work with us. And I said, no, no, I'm going to the entertainment business. So I did finally get a job at CBS in finance for about half the money I'd been making as an economist in, in Washington, D.C. And <laughs> I remember my father calling me and said, now, how's this working out? You're, you're taking a job that's paying you a lot less, and you just spent two years and lots of money in grad school. I said, Dad, trust me. This is what mm -hmm. I want to do. This is where I want to be, and that's what I'm 
that's how it's working out. So well, it's where your passion was. I yeah. mean, I loved reading the first section of your book where you even talk about while you were at Wharton, what do they call them? The Wharton, the fo follies. Uh, yeah, the Wharton the follies. You know what I did was I walked into Wharton and I said, "Hey, where? You know, I want to get into television entertainment. Where do the people like me at Wharton hang out?" thinking there was a club or something. And they said, well, interesting. There's not a lot of those people, but they put on the Wharton Follies every year. I went to a meeting with the Wharton Follies guys, and I found that they were like professionals from Broadway, you know, professional musicians who wanted to get out of that business and get to Wall Street, you know. Mm -hmm. But there we were, a bunch of people who, you know, wanted to put on a show. And that's what I did for two years. And the second year I wrote, I wrote the show, and it reminded me how much I loved writing comedy. I'd I'd done some comedy writing in, in college, and, and there I was writing comedy. And that's when I thought, man, I'd really love to work at a comedy channel, but there isn't one. So mm. that's, that's how that got started. So you just pitched it to HBO. Well, it's not as simple as that. Uh, <laughs> I not. spent a couple of years doing my job because I figured, all right, look, I'm going to get to HBO. They don't know me. They want me to do – actually, they wanted me to do econometric forecasting, if you can believe that. And I did. I did that for them. What kind of forecasting? Econometrics. It's uh, mathematical economics, which I happen to know something about because that's what I was doing in Washington. Anyway, I figured if I did a really great job there, you know, in the forecasting, then they would consider me for other stuff. And that was my whole plan. And that's mm -hmm. pretty much what, what happened. I got transferred to a, an area called new business development. And they were trying to develop other pay television channels there. Actually, just one. They were trying to develop a channel called Festival, which was supposed to be like HBO, but no sex violence or bad language. Some people weren't taking HBO because they thought it was too had too much sex violence and bad language. So they put together Festival, which had no sex violence or bad language. And the first day I walked into my new job and I said, now, how are we going to sell this by saying it doesn't have this stuff? Isn't this what entertainment usually sells mm -hmm. itself by saying they do have it? And, um, Everyone said, shh, shh, don't, don't say that. They wanted so, to create the Hallmark channel. I was going to say Hallmark or Lifetime. Essentially, yeah, but it was a page, a page channel. Lifetime oh. was not like that, actually. But you know what? You know what was the big competition? And they just, that was my first lesson in competition. We were putting together this festival thing, and we were testing it. And it had, you know, stuff for, for grown-ups, we said. Television for grown-ups. Disney, which was showing kids' movies, said, hey, we could show some grown-up movies that kids and grown-ups like, and we can basically take Festival right out of the picture. And that's what they did. Yeah. I, I mean, I recently did a um, MBA project. I finished my MBA last oh, year. Congratulations. And uh, so when I read your section on, you know, covering finance, I'm like, well, these were my least favorite classes. So you spent your time diving right into the stuff that I didn't love quite as much. At any rate, we did this analysis on what we called the streaming wars, um, specifically HBO, AT&T, Time Warner, and thinking uh, also about things like Disney and who's pricing their product where. And I have to say, value for dollar spent, Disney is slam dunking it still today. I mean, they've got the whole Star Wars franchise now. They have, of course, all the Marvel comics related movies and also, of course, the Disney Arsenal, which is quite vast, deep, and broad, right? And so they're charging, what, $6 a month for this service that everybody else is charging in the realm of 15 and 20 
it's it's pretty incredible what they've been able to do mm-hmm. over the course of this last few years. And I mean, I just see them continuing to rise. So I, I'm just curious where you see things heading in this new world. It's an interesting thing that you point out that Disney is doing so well and they have a huge library and they're charging less because I think those things all go together. I, I am not an expert on the streaming industry. As I said, I, mm-hmm. I got out of the business several years ago, but from what I could see, Netflix, for example, is paying a huge amount of money. They're starting from scratch. They don't have any back catalog. Mm-hmm. Uh, HBO is in a better position, but HBO has always seen itself as the premier television provider. So they're not going to go low. Disney just has all that stuff in the, in the basement that they can play that is timeless. And that is a huge advantage. So they don't have to put as much money, for example, as Netflix has to put in to keep their to keep themselves going. And that's, I think, why they can charge a little bit less. Plus, mm-hmm. as brand names go, you can't beat Disney. I know. It's a tough one, right? And they also <laughs> own ESPN and Hulu. So it's like, what are you going to do? It's They've right. cornered the market in a few arenas. I, I just wonder, you know, there's a couple of things that you mention in your book and also in, in another podcast I, I listened to as I prepared for today's session about interfacing with celebrities and working to ensure that we come to a space of success and collaboration. So I wonder if you could just offer your perspective of what it's like to, or how even, you work to collaborate with some of these A-listers and, you know, really support their growth and ensure that they're bringing the best to you too, as a part of Comedy Central or whatever it is that you're working to do. Well, there is one story. I don't know if you read the entire book, but there is one story I tell about working with Bill Maher from the very (laughs) beginning, by the way. I think he exemplifies one kind of talent. He made himself very hard to work with. And I don't know if that was just the way he is or the way he wanted to be. I always wonder about that, you know, because like, for example, John Stewart, who I worked with at the very beginning of his career, we had him, we had him on at the Comedy Channel. We called it Comedy Channel before we changed the name to Comedy Central. And almost instantly, first of all, we saw he was great television. Second of all, we saw he was a very passionate and, and thoughtful and intelligent guy. And he brought that to whatever he was doing. And third, he was just a nice guy. It was fun to hang mm-hmm. around with. Didn't, you know, make too much trouble. Didn't throw the furniture around. As opposed to Bill Moore, who did throw the furniture around. And, and it was, you know, again, it just makes it a little harder to work with people like that. What, what happens in cases where, you know, where someone is extremely talented but more difficult to work with, and that happens a lot. As it was explained to me early on, and I think this is right, it's the talent at the end of the day, he was getting in front of the camera. He's putting himself or herself in front of millions of people, putting their reputation on the line every minute of that time that they're on television. Mm-hmm. And it's a lot of pressure and it's a little scary. And so when the talent wants specific things and the things done specific ways and whether it's wardrobe or lighting or you know whatever the stories you hear about talent wanting things, they have a point. And I've always taken that to heart since it was explained to me. But uh, we still got into a bit of a tussle over uh, an ad campaign that that we did for his show. And I thought, man, wouldn't it be great for Bill Maher to do an ad campaign about his show? You know, get him out there. Nobody really knew him. He wasn't that famous in those days. Mm -hmm. 
But he didn't like the ad campaign. And he made it very clear to me that he didn't like the ad campaign by calling me up and telling me, I don't like the ad campaign and I'm having you fired. Mm -hmm. And that, that, you know, that was a pretty bracing moment for me. And I really tried to apologize and explain why we were doing it that way. And also looking back on it, I thought, okay, maybe I did something wrong. We showed this campaign to a lot of people, including his producers, but we didn't show it to Bill. Now, do you know why we didn't show it to Bill? Because Bill would say, go ahead, Julie. I'm going to guess (laughs) that he would just dismiss it automatically. Okay. And then we do another ad campaign and any guesses on what would happen to that one? He would so, not like it. He, so he could have done Something's better. always wrong. Something yes. is always wrong. So mm-hmm. what I was faced with, and I did check with some people on this, what I was faced with was making Bill Maher the head of marketing for Comedy Central. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, that's not such a great idea because we have to get something out the door. You have to keep moving when you're making television. Anyway, I did try and explain that to him, try and apologize to him, but he was not having any of it. And uh, he did try and get me fired. As it happened, I did not get fired. (laughs) (laughs) You had a benevolent boss. Well, it was just a non-starter. I mean, you know, talent says, fire this guy. They said, no, we're not firing this guy. And and that was kind of the worst worst I've seen in my career. I worked with, as I said, I worked with with Jon Stewart at the other end of the spectrum. And we had, you know, and, and lots of people we had great collaborations with. I can go through the list and say, this guy was hard. This guy was difficult. This guy was easy. You know, it, it's just, it's like anything else. It's like executives. You know, some of them are easy to work with and some of them are, you know, narcissistic psychopaths. <laughs> you have to have a say in every single thing that happens underneath them, right? So there's that. Oh my gosh. There's no short, there's no shortage of them in the entertainment industry either. So I had to work with them. So if you're in the business, you're getting it sometimes from both sides. How would you describe yourself as an executive? Not a narcissistic psychopath. Okay. <laughs> I am <laughs> not in right that group. I, I, you know what? I came out of economics, and then I went to business school. And Karina, you know this if you studied in business school. They put some emphasis on organization and structure and management skills mm-hmm. and things like that. When I got to the entertainment business, I saw that there was less emphasis on organization and management skills. And it was mostly because, and I say this without any malice, there's a guy or a gal at the top who, as Julie said, wants to do, you know, thinks they can call the shots on everything. There is one anecdote I'll tell you that was not in the book where the head of HBO, the chairman, and I were talking. And believe me, that was always a fraught experience for me because he was a very powerful man. And I the was most a, powerful person in Hollywood, the right? The most powerful at guy the time. in Hollywood, according mm-hmm. to the New York Times at, at the time. And I was the least, according to everybody. And um, <laughs> and so I was talking to him about something about management and structure. And he said, Art, you don't have to worry about that because I am managing the comedy channel. And I th- I said to myself, no, you're not. You're managing HBO, which is this giant, successful, monolithic company that needs a lot of attention all the time. Mm -hmm. And we are a startup on the side, and we need good managers and good people and good structure and all the stuff, all that. And so that was, we had to work around that, you know, we had to work around that. And it was hard. Wow. Well, I I have a curious question. Go ahead. And, because and you're curious, is, Karina. <laughs> we always come back to this. But I've heard over the years about some very strange, weird asks by 
you know, people working in Hollywood. It's almost as if they have to have a weird ask in order to be taken seriously. What is the weirdest ask you've ever had? And you don't have to tell who, I'm just curious. Oh, I like that question. I'm curious too. Well, th this happened after I was at Comedy Central. I became president of Court TV. And I don't know if you, you may not remember that whole experience, but it was live courtroom trials in the daytime. And then we put mysteries and crime dramas on at night. At five o'clock, we had Nancy Grace going on doing a live show. I think she's still doing shows. But I, th I would say two or three times a week, I would be called up. Now, I was the boss, you know, but they would call me up and say, it's 20 minutes to five. Nancy says she's not going on. Hmm. Now, I don't know if you consider that a weird ask, but I had to go up there and I had to say, okay, Nancy, what's up? She goes, I don't, you know, the director wants to do this and I don't want to do that. And I said, well, what does the director want to do? And she'd explain it. And then the director would come over and we'd have a conversation. And somehow I'd work it out, usually by telling the director, we're going to do it Nancy's way. So she gets on the air at five o'clock. And mm. that's, you know, it was like that. Yeah, people throwing their weight around. That's a lot of power she had. I'll tell you something. You're doing live television, which mm -hmm. is the most fun you can have in television. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Crazy. Look and at your thinking, smile on your face anything, when you said that. I, I told some stories in the book about live television. Anything mm -hmm. can happen and probably mm -hmm. will. I mean, one of our big successes at Comedy Central, this was in 1992, is we covered the State of the Union Address live. And we had comedians commenting on the State of the Union Address as the president was talking. Now, it was a very audacious stunt. And I tell the whole story about, you know, how it was hard for us to put together. And we got Al Franken. Do you remember Al Franken? Yes. He was on Saturday Night Senator Live. Senator Franken. Senator mm -hmm. Franken, who was no mm -hmm. longer Senator Franken. We can get into that after the show. But he was going to do, we, we got him. And we were very proud of that. He was a big name. And he did live television. So we said, perfect. He knows live television. So... <laughs> we're at rehearsal before, and they did a lot of rehearsal that week because they didn't know how they were going to do this, right? So we were at rehearsal, and it was about an hour until the president's day of the year address. So the director, his name was Billy Kimball. He says, okay, everybody get ready. We've got an hour before we go live. And Al looks up, and he says, what do you mean before we go live? We're doing this live? I thought this was live to tape. I'm not doing oh. this live. And he walked out. Oh, Mr. Oh, Rankin. Right. <laughs> that was. Did you ask that. Nancy Grace to fill his place? <laughs> I didn't know Nancy at the time, nor would have I, I, I. Nor would I have asked her. But anyway, we all stood there with stunned looks on our face, as you can imagine. Uh, and luckily, we had a brilliant talent vice president. Her name was Lori Zacks, and uh, she became a very famous producer in Hollywood. She ran after him. I don't know what she said to him or how she did it. But you got him back in the room, and he said, okay. And he put on a great show, really funny, really yeah. good. And we got great reviews. And I think that was one of the things that put Comedy Central on the map early on, because that's when the press kind of looked up and said, hey, these guys at Comedy Central, they got something going over there. You know, they're doing some stuff you can't do anywhere else. That's cool. Yeah. It, it was cutting edge, I mean, yeah. in my opinion. It really was. Yeah. Yeah. Now, speaking of live TV, if you watched the Oscars last night, there was quite a moment that I think none of us can kind of fathom even just happened. That was bananas. Bananas. Right. Like, I don't typically watch the Oscars, and I happen to turn it on live and see something I never expected, which was, what, Chris Rock getting smacked for 
I don't know, touching on something sensitive. <laughs> I mean, would you protect your wife's honor like that? Or would your husband do that? Not, not in front of a live worldwide television yeah. audience. I, think I mean, I really thought to, it was planned I think I might get into yeah. it in, at the after party, but I don't think, or I might. A little bit you know, of an overreaction. I might, I might have I a bad know. look on my face when the camera showed up. The I, You know, and w listen, we're not the first ones to parse this. We're not going to mm -hmm. be the last ones. This will mm -hmm. be, and I just read, by the way, before we got on, that the Academy is opening a formal, <laughs> I'm sorry to laugh, a formal <laughs> investigation into what happened. I, I, what are they going to find out? What, what are they looking for? What, I mean, what, we all witnessed they, what happened, what right? What is this like? Is this like the January 6th <laughs> committee? I mean, what are they going to do? Call testimony, testimony from witnesses? <laughs> I'm sorry. To me, that's comedy. That's comedy. The Academy's <laughs> opening. Yeah, we're going to look into this and see what really happened. I think we saw what really happened. That is funny. Um, oh. Yeah, I, but I the think list was, of witnesses would yeah, be right. stellar, <laughs> stellar, <laughs> right. and the cameras from every which angle. We're sending so. out a billion subpoenas, and we do not up. condone violence here on the media casters. Oh my gosh, the academy! See, that was funny too because the academy issued that statement almost that, directly on the heels. They do now, not condone violence. I do not know Chris Rock personally. I never worked with him, but Nancy Geller, who was very instrumental in putting Comedy Channel and Comedy Central together, she worked with him extensively throughout the 90s and beyond, and they are close friends. I haven't talked to her about what, what she thinks, but she all she loves Chris Rock. She says he is the greatest guy in the world. He's the nicest guy in the world. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't know if it was out of character. You know, listen, okay, let's go through the list of jokes that have killed careers, and there have been. You know, there have been mm. jokes that have killed careers, but Gilbert Gottfried told a joke mm. uh, that that got him kicked off the Aflac account and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and he famously almost told a 9-11 joke two weeks after 9-11 to a crowd of comedians at, at uh, I'm laughing because it's not funny, at um, uh, one of the Comedy Central roasts, which I just happened to be at, where they were roasting Hugh Hefner. Mm. And, and you know, it. I don't know if you meant to bring this up, but comedians and comedy writers, their job is to walk up to the line and step over the line once in a while and then step back. And that is what makes live comedy especially as exciting as it is, because you get to see the world through their eyes and you get to hear them say things that you wouldn't think they should say. The quick story about Gilbert Gottfried is he, we were at this roast and there were place was packed with comedy people uh, mm -hmm. and big, you know, big executives two weeks after 9-11. And Gilbert gets up there and he says, you know, this thing with 9-11. And everybody went, no, too soon. You saw 500 people put their arms up in the air saying, don't do this. Whatever the joke is, it's don't tell it. it. Yeah. And he switched gears like that and got out of it and told a very famous joke, which became a very famous telling of the joke called the aristocrats, which is a joke that comedians tell each other uh, to make each other laugh. Uh, mm -hmm. And he told it and it was extremely funny. Everybody was on the floor laughing. It was interesting, you know, thinking back on it, he really set the room up by going into that nine 11 thing. Cause how, how much more uncomfortable can you make a room than that? Right. Everybody was like, cringing. nothing funny. Even now anything, about nine eleven. <laughs> exactly. Anything he mm -hmm. said after that was going to be brilliant. And it was. So good, you know, 
thinking to South Park and its involvement on Comedy Central, I feel like... Transition to South Park now. They did a really, really good job of Mm -hmm. making fun of certain aspects of what our culture did around 9-11. Like, I remember an entire montage where it was just Rudy Giuliani Giuliani getting on stage and saying, 9-11, and then the whole crowd, you know... (laughs) roaring with whatever and i i felt like okay they're they're touching on the wire here and they were doing that relatively early by reference to when 9-11 occurred so uh, again just pushing boundaries and really you know, seeing uh, uh, what could be done south park gets into the realm of satire and you know also uh, true confessions i left shortly after south park came on the air so i was not you know part of the you're not claiming south park i was there when it came in and <laughs> was part of the group that laughed like crazy uh, and said, if we get this on the air, it'll be terrific, but it'll also be dangerous. Mm-hmm. Anyway, um, but what they do is, is you know, they've, they do satire, you know, and they do mm-hmm. it very well. And satire through the years, starting with Jonathan Swift, A Modest Proposal, where he suggested that in order to beat the the famine, people eat their children, which was, you know, which was notably outrageous at the time. Satire gets outrageous. And, and maybe there's a little more latitude for, for something that's considered satirical. But anyway, you know, now we're getting into the, the finer, the finer <laughs> point. I think that what, what the South Park guys do and what they've done in all their endeavors is brilliant. I mean, it's just, you know, talent like that comes along once in a generation. Very impressive. Is there anything that you've said no to? We can't cross that line, or are you open to all things? Okay, so here's the thing. I mean, this came up recently. Um, it comes up all the time now because of the so-called woke audience, where people are going to get up and walk out before you actually, before the comedian tells the joke, or people will not watch the movie if they don't like the direction it's going in. And man, that is very hard on comedy comedians and comedy writers. Because as we said before, they you know their whole job is to to push the boundaries. And you mentioned Karina before before we got on the the podcast here that you you saw some of the podcasts that I did with my friend Vinny Favali, mm-hmm. and we interviewed some comedians from the '90s who were working and are working now about this, and they're scared to death. They are scared to death. I mean, Jerry Seinfeld famously said, I'm not going to work colleges anymore because the the audience takes offense at my act. And Mm -hmm. I'm thinking, man, Jerry Seinfeld, he's the least offensive comedian I can think of. And so that's a problem. And I hope it swings back. I do hope it swings back. It's a different generation, Art. Seriously. It is, but you know what? Let's think about all the great things that the outrageous comics of the 90s did. And I'm thinking of women comics, Sarah Sarah Silverman, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, they were really kind of talking about what it was like to be a woman in the 1990s in America. And what a great way to get that that point across to men who otherwise wouldn't be listening to any of this, mm-hmm. right? I thought it was just, you know, if you look at the sum total of their of of their acts and their however else they were communicating, they were doing the world a service by saying, look, this is what it's like, and this is how we feel, and get used to it, you know? So comedy inadvertently serves that purpose. And if you say you can't do that anymore, what'd you just do? What did you just do? 
Anyway. So what do you think it's going to take in this era to be successful as a new comic or as someone who's trying to break free? I, listen, six, and now we're on a slightly different topic because, you know, there's there's been over the years lots of comics who don't touch on anything that's the least bit controversial. Although things that weren't considered controversial then, I mean, all the comics, all the Borschbell comics did Jewish comedy and mm-hmm. Italian comedy and Puerto Rican. I mean, they were just, you know, that was their shtick that we are, you know, a minority and there's other minorities and we're going to talk about all the other minorities. You can't do that anymore. So in those days, it was very acceptable. In these days, not so much. But what it takes to be a great comedian or a great comedy writer is a lot of work. It's the same thing mm-hmm. it takes to be a great anything. It takes a lot of work and a lot of practice for a comedian to get a good five minutes, a good solid five minutes to go on to do showcases takes, you know, months and months of writing and rewriting and thinking and trying and all that stuff. Listen, all the comedians, most of the comedians, I will say, but, you know, if you go into the comedy business, you're considered funny and you consider yourself funny. So that's not the issue. The issue is, can you make it work can you do it on on command mm-hmm. and can you can you relate to an audience yeah what was that je ne sais quoi or something special that you saw in comedians that you're you just had to have them well you, you know again or something they should not be doing <laughs> see now you're making a you're making an interesting uh leap je I, ne sais I did quoi, get to, my french no Sorry, no that Karina. wasn't a leap i speak that much french um <laughs> <laughs> after after six years of high of French junior high and high school, um, wow. but I, I was not the talent court. I was not the talent person. Mm-hmm. I mean, I worked with the talent people, and you know, when we made decisions like like the one I talked about on Al Franken or Bill Moore, I worked with Bill Moore and John Stewart. But you know, we had people going to clubs every night, who way past my bedtime, looking at new talent. So it would be a better question for them. But I will say that, you know, again, I, I mentioned John Stewart. There, there, are, there are certain people who I, I thought were extremely funny and could make me laugh no matter what they were doing or saying. Those are the ones that I kind of picked off uh, as the ones who would be successful. When I saw John Stewart, I said, man, this guy's great television and he's going to be brilliantly successful. And uh, I was right. Yeah. Well, good bet on that one. I personally, I've loved a lot of what he's done and just... So impressed. The Daily Show reshaped news in America. For well, it was a where I got my time. news for a while. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> and, and, I mean, that's a reality for a lot yeah, of people. Right. And that is a very impressive feat. You know, not since Walter Cronkite, I would say, has somebody really kind of wrestled the news to the ground the way the way John did. Mm. Wow. Well, Art, I, I want to finish your reading your book and then invite you back oh, to ask yes. you more questions. Definitely. F- <laughs> The book is a memoir. I will mention that. You mm-hmm. didn't mention that. And as a memoir, it's a real personal kind of telling of. It's all your opinion for legal legalities, right? It's it's it's, it's my opinion, <laughs> but it's not only my opinion. It's kind of how I felt at the time, whether it was mm-hmm. good, bad or sad or happy or uh, laughing or not laughing. And, it, you know, it's it's quite a story. And uh, I'm glad I told it. I'm glad yeah. I told it. Well, I, I'm just speaking from the heart here when I say, you know, just page turner from page one. I just wasn't able to complete it before this particular interview. And I mean, I, I'm just looking forward to having the opportunity to finish it because it's it's an incredible read. You Thank did you a very, very good job of putting us right in your shoes. 
And I feel like I'm learning something from that as I contemplate writing my own book um, that is kind of in uh, ideation phase at the present time. So thank you for your work. And I have it on Audible as well. It's on Audible. It's on. It's It's not paperback yet. Paperback's coming out according to my publisher Mm -hmm. in in, uh, December. Why December? I don't know, but that's that's his choice. Time for Christmas, man. That's a it's a good season to release a paperback. Yep. We'll have you back before the holidays. But funniest, 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 funniest thing that's ever happened to you in your whole entire life. The most outrageous thing that ever happened to me is a story I tell in the book is when Dennis Miller was doing the State of the Union Address live. Mm -hmm. And I was sitting there watching from the green room or whatever. And the speech went long and Dennis had to go to the bathroom. (laughs) That is funny. What does one do? He, he he kept his mic on. He kept his mic on, oh. walked off stage, Did and I hear this didn't know where the bathroom was, but there was a garbage can there. And so he went to the bathroom in the garbage can in the hall <laughs> outside. And while we were, you know, we're out there, actually, Lori Zacks, who is the talent person, she said, uh-oh. And I said, what? And she goes, I think we got a big problem here. And we ran out and there he was. And he finished and he went back in and he completed the broadcast. Terrific live. But the funny part is he came running out and he said, oh my God, I killed my career. I killed it. It's dead. And of course he didn't, but he thought he did. And he ran down the hall and around the corner to where there was a men's bathroom. And he went into the men's bathroom. And I went down there with Lori and I said, uh, okay, Lori, you're going to have to go into the bathroom and talk the guy off the ledge. She goes, no, I draw the line there. I don't go into a men's bathroom for anyone. <laughs> I said, all right, I'll go into the men's bathroom and talk him off the, le- talk him off the ledge. And that's what I did. I went so then you were a talent manager. You said you've never been one, but you were that day. <laughs> you, oh. you know, when, when you're in television, you get called on to do everything uh, mm-hmm. short of going on the air, which I would have probably run the other way. But you get called on to do everything. It's fun. That's why television is fun. Wow. What an amazing tenure. What an amazing, amazing just life you've led. Yeah. It's been, I look back, it's been a great career and I'm very happy to be writing now. I'm more, I, Karina, you're going to like it. It's a lot. If, if you end up liking it, it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. Well, I have to say, and the current world of comedy, some of my favorite shows are It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. I right. don't think I'll ever get over that one. I had the pleasure of meeting the cast, aside from Danny DeVito, he wasn't there at Sundance one year, and just great cast, great people, really funny, innovative shows, and, you know, on FX, not Comedy Central, right? But um, they're they're just doing incredible stuff, and I, I like to see that. I like to see the irreverence and the fact that they're continuing to be brave in this current climate today. So um, my hope is that we'll see more innovative comedy coming out that will push the envelope without fear and that will be entertained for the next few decades. Yeah. Some of these people are coming out of the work that you initially got started. So yeah. thank you for that. You're welcome. So besides being on our podcast, what else are you doing for fun these days? Fun. Let's see. I play the piano. I play jazz piano. I'm taking oh, lessons. Wow. Yeah. I've done that since I was played piano since I was a kid and I'm playing jazz drums because I, I played for about 10 years. I, I used to listen to jazz and think, what the heck is that drummer doing? I can't even figure <laughs> it out. So I thought, all right, I'll try playing drums. And I took lessons and 
playing jazz drums is hard, but it's really fun. So that's what I do. Drums and uh, piano. And I'm out here in Utah, so I ski and I hike. And I used to travel, but this COVID thing's cut that down to a, you know, down substantially. And we took up scuba diving, my wife and I, a few years ago. And that's as much fun as you can have. That's yeah. great. Well, when you come out to the Monterey Bay, you can come dive with me. Okay. So. Do you dive? <laughs> yeah. I'll, I'll take pictures. <laughs> I'll just take pictures. <laughs> Before we get in. Right. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> or underwater. We have underwater cameras too. Perfect. I'm heading to Kauai next week, so I'll do some warm water diving. But the cold water stuff is really where That's a lot cool. of the life is. Yeah, true. True. Yeah. Should we do it, Karina? We should do it. Yes. Let's do it. So if you are open to it, we have all our guests at the end of each episode repeat these two words. Kick, Kick it. Kick it. <laughs> Kick it. Let's Kick, Kick it. it. Wait, wait, wait. Kick it. <laughs> wait, you're good at this. One more time. Kick it. Yes. Thanks for listening to another episode of The Media Casters. You can keep this conversation going and kick it with Karina and Jules in live office hours each week. Visit themediacasters.mn.co to sign up. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe whenever you listen. Let's kick it.